Please be seated. Our scripture lesson from this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 17. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit the blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. In the history of theology, you had the birth of liberalism somewhere in the 1700s, where it became the search of the theologian to find what parts of the Bible were the word of God and which were not. According to liberals, the Bible was the record of man searching for God, not God's revelation to man. But in there, somewhere, there were legitimate truths, and you had to kind of ferret them out and find them. And so you had a canon in a canon that they would give to you. They would tell you the parts of the Bible that were inspired, and uh, not surprisingly, it was the parts that whatever spirit of the age was, those were the parts that were inspired. Then there came a man called Barth, Karl Barth, who dropped a bomb on liberalism with his commentary on Romans, and he seemed to be saying that all of the Bible is actually inspired by an actual God, and it's all true. His new theology was called neo-orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means right glory, and it refers to when you rightly believe what God has given you, revelation taught you in the word. Uh, Barth's was called neo-orthodoxy, new orthodoxy. The reason it was called new was because Barth wasn't quite what he seen. Barth used theological language that comes directly from the Bible, but Barth would fill up the language with other meaning. 
so that when Bars talked about the resurrection, you weren't really sure if he actually meant somebody came out of a tomb or if he were talking about a philosophical or uh, intellectual kind of concept that didn't have anything to do with dead bodies actually coming out of tombs and such. Flash forward to some 30 years ago, and I'm sitting in a seminary classroom studying the history of the evangelical movement. And the professor is talking about theology, but he's doing it from a Barthian kind of perspective. As I halfway listen, because quite frankly, at this point, I'm kind of zoning out and thinking about other things. But as I'm halfway listening, it occurred to me that this word game he was playing, this using biblical language but filling it with other meaning, could be a rather dangerous kind of thing because, you know, I'm actually alive. I'm an actual person. And I actually kind of care about what's going to happen in the future, especially concerning me. And so as the professor continued to drone on, I raised my hand and I asked a question and said, um, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you're defining these things in psychological terms, really. Sanctification is not divine influence on the soul so much as it is growing in maturity in a much more natural kind of way. Conversion isn't really a change of the soul, it's maturity. Well, what about death? And the professor went, ah, what about death? Death is the leading psychological concept that is driving the evangelical movement. Uh, evangelicals are a reaction to coming death. And I raised my hand again and said, yeah, but what about death? I'm actually a living person, I think, therefore I am. Some would say I sort of think, therefore I partly are, but I do, I think, I am, I, I exist, there's going to come a time where my body will cease. So what do your concepts have to say to me? And the professor said, well, really nothing. We don't actually know what happens when a person dies. There might be some sort of supernatural reality. There might not either. Uh, theology can't really help you with that. This is all psychological constructs in the mind. Death is a symbol. And I said, I'm not a symbol. I really kind of care what happens next. Will I be or will I not be? With such language, we have entered into the realm of the definition of the Bible's word hope. Hope is an interesting uh, quality. It's one of the big three. If you know that famous passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know that now there abide three things. They continue on forever. These three things are faith and love, but in the middle of them is hope. These three things remain, faith, hope, and love. They seem to be the, the, the 
big virtues into which everything else can be plugged, and you find that trinity of virtues several places. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he talks to the Thessalonian church, the first thing he says to them is, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. So Paul would say to the people in the church at Thessalonica, I know you're chosen. And the reason why I know you're chosen is because you have faith, love, and hope. In fact, when he writes to the church at Colossae, he again brings up this big three, uh, and it's interesting where he places hope. Writing to the Colossians, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. And this is the interesting part. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So if you go looking for it all over the New Testament, the apostle sums up the Christian life in these three terms. And here, where does faith come from? Well, it seems to rest on hope. Where does love come from? It seems to rest on hope. Faith justifies you're saved by faith alone. Love is said to be the big one of the three. Now there remain three things, faith, hope, and love. And the the last of that verse is, but the greatest of these is love. So love is certainly the highest. But in Colossians, hope is generative. Where does faith come from? Well, partly it comes from hope. Where does love come from? Well, at least partly it comes from hope. What is hope? It is not what we mean usually when we use the term. In English parlance, if I say, I hope it won't rain tomorrow, I am not conveying any sort of major assurance. I'm expressing a desire of the will. You know, it'd be really nice if the event we had tomorrow wasn't rained out, so I hope it doesn't rain. The biblical word doesn't have anything to do with that at all. It's kind of like when we've taken the word grace and turned it into she moves in a very pretty way. That woman has great grace. It usually means she's a good dancer. doesn't have anything to do with the biblical term. Well, here, hope is an absolute assurity. It is something that in your spirit you are convinced of, and it lays hold of everything you are, and you're kind of built on this assurance. One might ask how this is different than faith, and if you do, you find out that faith and hope are deeply related. It becomes hard to pull them apart as a concept, 
but they are not completely synonymous. And, and the difference seems to be, when you boil it down, faith looks back. There is something that has happened that gives you an assurance and a trust, and you look into the past and you say, I know that happened, therefore I am trusting. Whereas hope is looking towards the future and saying, because of my assurance, I can have assurance that the future is going to be good. This hope fires forward in time, and it really doesn't have an endpoint. Hope, if it is hope, has to pass every endpoint we can muster. This week in my classes, I asked my students to define the term nihilism. Not many of them could. In fact, many of them had not heard of the term, which is surprising, because most philosophies that govern our current society are, in fact, nihilistic. Nihilism is a philosophy that says you were eternally not present in the past. There was a poet when you were born, yes, but there's going to come a time when you die, and when you die, since there is nothing but the world of matter, when you die, it's going to be like when you didn't exist. You're going to not exist again, and effectively, it is infinite into the past, and it is infinite into the future, and you have had at most maybe 70, perhaps 80 years to kind of do and be and feel and think. But honestly, it don't mean nothing because you're nothing in the beginning, you're nothing in the end, and really nothing you do lays any significance for anything or anybody. So therefore, there is literally no meaning to be had in the world. Meaning, if meaning exists, has to be something that you invent as your own construct because there is no objective meaning. Nihilism is kind of all the rage in academic circles. Um, if you have only naturalism, then you have nihilism, logically. Nihilism is the opposite of this hope. Christian hope is an assurance that things will get better in the future, and it does not stop at death. The Apostle Paul said, if we had only hope in Christ for this life, if Christ had not been raised and death was the end, he says, and he is a writer of Christian scripture, it is written in the Holy Covenant, if that was the only hope we had, we'd have no hope at all. We would be of all men to be most pitied. That is not what Christian hope is. Christian hope is that in coming future ages, infinitum, things will get better because there is an assurance that God will make it better. Or in the words of the scripture that I read just a moment ago, there is stored up for you something in heaven, something in the eternity of eternities, that will be yours forever. You will exist beyond your physical death here. Things will get better in the future. That is hope. That is inherently woven into the Christian worldview. 
Now these three things abide, faith, hope, and love. And if you don't have hope, what kind of Christian can you claim to be? As a pastor, it has been my particular uh, vantage point to watch a number of people die. I mean, you know, I realize the Codwells here also see a lot of people die, but it's kind of very fast and you pick up the bodies. I watch them die slowly. I watch them go through the months of wearing down. I watch them go through hospice. You do that too, of course. But, I mean, as a pastor, I have a particular vantage point for that. And it's it's fascinating to watch the hopeless and the hopeful die because it is worlds different. You might have... You might have dementia set in in a lot of these cases for the hopeful and the hopeless, but you would be surprised at how little dementia actually affects hopefulness or hopelessness. When I watch somebody who is hopeless die, there is a dark and foreboding feeling around them as absolute, absolute despair sets in. And, and it just radiates from them. And there might be anger and bitterness and bile, but, but there is this total, total hopelessness. There's nothing to look forward to, no future. When they die, you can almost hear hell sucking them into its abyss. When the hopeful die, even if they're in the grip of dementia, there's a totally different spirit about that person. I remember as a young minister going to visit the mother of my pianist uh, in the nursing home. She was wrestling with dementia. She was a believer and she was in her last stages of life, but she was, she was fighting dementia and she was fighting it with hope. Uh, I had a good visit with her. And then that Lord's day, when I came in, my pianist was chuckling and I asked her what it was about. She said, well, Mom really lives in hope, and she keeps a notebook beside her bed because she knows she's going to forget a lot of stuff, but she doesn't want to forget it. So whenever anything happens, she quickly writes it down, and I read her notebook, and she said, uh, that nice young boy from my daughter's church visited me today. It's been a while. I don't think she'd write that now, but still... There is this, this hopefulness she had that is not in the hopeless. It is night and day. In our passage today, specifically in verse 15 and 16, the Apostle Peter assumes those who he is writing to has hope. Always be ready, says Peter, to give an answer to the hope that is in you. That's not a command to have it. It's an assumption that you do have it. As a Christian, as a transformed person, as someone in the grip of the Holy Spirit, someone that Christ died for, it can simply be assumed that you have hope, but that cannot be assumed of the human race. When the Bible talks about where the majority of the human race is, 
there's a number of passages I could quote, but the the one that sticks out to me, and so you hear it every now and then, is Psalm 4. David is considering the people around him and how he is different from them. And David, writing by the Spirit, says, There are many who say, who will show us any good? That is the voice of hopelessness. That is the creeping nihilism that the older you get, if you're outside of Christ, envelops you more and more. If you're outside of Christ, there really is no way to keep nihilism at bay. It becomes more and more real to you every day. And David describes people saying, there are many who say, who will show me any good? What good lasts? What good is really good? What what meaning is there? You can't show me any. Well, David is not of that opinion, though. He says, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's hope talking to hopelessness. It's the language of these two philosophies interchanging. Even when your wine and your oil and your riches increase and you're briefly celebrating that, uh, I have something that makes me hopeful beyond that. And that is brief for you. It's feast and famine. Uh, Even when you're feasting, I have more hope, though. And your brief feast doesn't bring you hope. What you really need is for the Lord to lift up his countenance like he does for us. The Lord looks on us with kindness, with reconciliation. When the Lord lifts up his countenance upon you, it means the Lord is willing to look at you and to call you his own. That's what's happened to David. And he says, That's, that, that really fills me with joy. That fills me with uh, a forward-looking hope. Even though he use the term, that's what's being described. It is assumed that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you will have this hope, and it will be so clear that those who are saying, who will show us any good, will approach you and say, what the heck is wrong with you? You seem hopeful. You'll stand in that kind of contrast enough that they'll ask. And that brings us to the apostles' uh, twofold command. The hope is assumed, but there is something to do with the hope that he, he commands. The first one is he says... Answer their question. They're asking about hope. They see hope in you. Tell them what your hope is. All the way through this section of 1 Peter, Peter has returned us to the concept of evangelism, sharing Jesus Christ with those who don't know him. And here he says the hope that you possess is going to be something that is so attractive that that will bring them to seek it. And when they do, you tell them what that hope is you have. This is not a contradiction to the Great Commission. The Great Commission says, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The commandment is put in terms of teaching there, but did you catch the last line? Uh, All authority has been given to me. That's the first line. And then the last line is, I'm always with you. And so the entire evangelistic process is rooted in the hope, the assurity, that Jesus Christ is with you and he is the hope. And as Paul said, where does God create faith from? From hope. Where does God create love from? He creates it from hope. So Peter says, when they ask you about your hope, be ready to tell them what it is. Uh, it's Christ, and have that ready answer. Um, you need to study to show yourself approved. Be ready, says Peter, which indicates that you might be caught flat-footed. There is a movement today called deconstructionism. Ironically, uh, it borrows the language of a very faithful theologian, but teaches people to really dig into their uh, religious ideas and, quote, deconstruct them. You have these doctrinal ideas, you have this way of thinking, but is it a justified way of thinking or not? You should go down and look at all the roots of, of what it is you think. Um, the purpose of the movement is to destroy the Christian faith. But the reason why it works for a number of people is because they don't really construct their faith rightly and say, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which is entrusted to him against that day. They don't really know why they believe, so these people say, go look what you believe and find out why you believe it, and they go, I don't know, and it all collapses in. Peter is aware of that kind of thing, and he says, be prepared to explain why you believe what you believe. Really, just yesterday, I had a guy kind of challenge me on that. Uh, Prove to me that there is a creator God. Okay, that's easy. Proving a creator is not proving the biblical Trinitarian Godhead. You didn't ask me to do that. You asked me to prove that there's a creator. Well, we live in a world of causation. Everything has a cause. Uh, your mother and father like each other really real well, and so you came along, and that goes back and goes back and goes back and goes back. It goes back into the ancient past. In fact, everything that is in creation has a cause, but that brings up the question, what was the first cause? And it has to be something non-causal. You have to have something from out of town to create a universe of causality. Otherwise, you can't have it, and we do have it, so there has to be a first cause. That's the creator. Also, uh, you have to be able to say that reason and logic and epistemology actually have a foundation. Otherwise, you might just be a madman thinking you think, but you don't really think, but you think you think. Uh, How do you know that you're not a madman? How do you know that you're not sitting in a padded cell imagining you're in a church right now. 
Well, without a ground of being, an original causation to give meaning to categories, you don't know. And in fact, ironically, in critical thinking textbooks, they have to say, now, one of the principles we're going to have is we're going to have faith and reason. Okay, that's good, but think about the statement you just made. We're going to have faith in reason. Well, you kind of have to because reason doesn't have a foundation. You kind of have to trust it. But I don't have to just trust it because I believe there's a creator, and the creator gave meaning to the things he created. So it's very obvious to me that there is, in fact, a creator. And the guy threw his hands up and said, see, nobody can ever give me a reason to wander off. But, you know, he's rejecting 2,000 years of Western thought in doing that. Um, but I'm ready to answer the question. If he had asked me the reason for my hope in Christ, that would have been more complex. I would have to talk about the fact that it's clear that there is good in the world, even though there is evil, and I don't deny that, but I'm able to determine that there are good things. There are things that uh, really cannot be in existence unless you have some sort of ultimate good, some sort of uh, defining to good. And if there really is something good, and if it is woven into the creation, the creator has to possess it. So... There needs to be a good God, and in Jesus Christ, we encounter the goodness of God in its highest form. I'm, I'm ready to have that conversation. What is the reason for my hope? Well, uh, God has demonstrated all these things, and then in Scripture, Scripture testifies to God, and it doesn't contradict any of natural revelation, but it certainly brings out more revelation, and I find the goodness of God there. I'm prepared to have that conversation. Are you? Because that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, be prepared to say to that person who is living in hopelessness, which is everybody, outside of Christ, everybody is living quiet lives of desperation. When they come to you by night, when they have snuck away from the Sanhedrin, when they come to you and say, now we know you're from God because of what we've seen, are you prepared to be Christ-like and give a reason for the hope that is in you? Be ready to do that. And do it in a proper internal environment. Before Peter gives his command to answer the question and be ready to give the answer, he says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready. What does it mean to sanctify the Lord God in your heart? The term to sanctify means to make holy. Uh, it's kind of like faith and belief. In English, faith is the noun and belief is the verb. Uh, to sanctify something is to make it holy, but we don't have the word to holify something. Although that's kind of a fun word if you think about it. Uh, we make something holy by sanctifying it. And Peter says, set the Lord God apart as holy internally so you'll be ready to do this. Now, God is infinitely holy. You can't add to his holiness. But this is in reference to his relationship to you internally. You set him apart as holy, as above everything else in you. 
Um, there are many authorities that men make their decisions by. There is reason, there is tradition, there is emotion and experience, there is the word of God written. These authorities are authorities. The question is, what order do you put them in? And Peter says, the authority of all authorities above all the others must be the Lord Christ. Set him apart, set God apart in your heart. Uh, it's not that these other things don't count, but they do answer to God. Set him above all these things. And once you have done that, you will be ready to have the hope that you will be ready to explain. The truth is, human lives are wrecked by uh, misappropriating authorities into the wrong place. Is your human reason a good authority? Well, yes, but not the highest. Is your emotion and experience a reason to make a decision? Well, uh, yeah, people do all the time, but is that the highest, or should these things answer to something else? And Peter says, set the Lord God above it all. Sanctify him in your hearts, and with that, you will be ready to explain your hope. We do that at the very beginning of our confession. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Well, my only comfort, which is language is setting something apart, it's the only thing that it does, uh, my only comfort is that I, with body and soul, in both life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Why do you have any comfort? Comfort is another word for hope, really. What's your only comfort? Well, I belong to God. That's my highest reason. That's my only comfort. And that's what Peter is getting at. He is getting at sanctify the Lord, put him above all things, and you will have a reason for comfort and an ability to share it. We should do so in meekness and in fear, which is interesting language. It has been taken to mean the kind of courteousness that I preached on last Sunday. And it does kind of work out that way. If you are going to be sharing your hope in Christ, don't let somebody get you so angry that you begin to fume and shout and finally throw your New Testament at them and walk out the door, which I have watched happen. Turned out the guy doing it wasn't a safe person, but still not exactly a good picture. But, Meekness and fear are the characteristics you have when you come into the presence of a higher. Fear has to do with a sovereign. You fear the king. You fear a prince. Meekness is acknowledging your proper place in the order so that when the prince or the king comes into your presence, you bow before him because he's over you. Uh, the, the, the strong 
leaning here is Peter is not thinking, really, if you're going to be an evangelist, you need to be winsome. What Peter is saying is if you're going to be an evangelist and share your hope, you need to remember that God is literally watching. You share your hope with God literally listening to every word. You definitely need to do this in a way that your king and lord will approve of because he is right there. If you have a boss, how do you act when he's around? Are you a bit more conscientious? Gene doesn't get to count here because he is the boss and oftentimes it doesn't happen. But in, in most of the world, uh, when the boss is around, you act far more conscientious because you know he's there. Well, Peter is saying, be ready to do this, but do it in meekness and in fear, fear of God, meekness before God. Um, it is the culture of the kingdom that is the environment of your hope. They are asking, why are you different? And if in your relationship to them, you are not different, then you will nullify what's leading them to ask you for your hope. Oh, well, turns out that Christians are big jerks. Uh, most of us aren't, but, you know, the 10% that are kind of give us a bad name. And Peter is being ruthlessly pragmatic. Remember that God is watching and don't do that. It is only in sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts, by the way, that we will have strength not only to share our hope, but to also endure the kind of unjust suffering that I have been talking about for several months. That is the backdrop of First Peter. Christians are being treated with injustice. And Peter is writing this letter because of that crisis that hasn't disappeared from our passage. The, the texts that I'm focusing on are 15 and 16, but consider 14 and 17, which bracket them. 14 says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. And then we have my text, and then 17, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So evangelism is being put in the very context of you'll be treated with injustice, you will be abused, this is the way of the world, uh, but you have to share your hope anyway, and your hope has to endure that anyway. The strength of that hope, the strength of that evangelism, is setting the Lord God as holy in your heart. It has been a very disappointing season if you are looking for any sort of justice in the world. The world is filled with injustice. People are persecuted for doing good and they're patted on the back for doing evil. And that gets worse when the law of God isn't sanctifying a society, and currently the law is laying slack, to use Habakkuk's picture. 
men aren't pulling the Lautant, so it falls slack. And the more slack the law is culturally, the more unjust the world is. If you are expecting justice in this world, you are sadly mistaken. Peter says, likely, nobody's going to hurt you for doing good, but it's real enough I have to write the letter. And where will you have the strength to endure injustice? You will have the strength because you have set the Lord God holy in your heart. You have a hope that transcends this life. If we only had hope for Christ in this life, we would be the most to be pitied. Uh, hope has to be beyond this life. There has to be a promise of eternity, a promise of God's goodness in coming ages, a continuation of life beyond the grave into eternity, or the Christian faith makes no sense and all of that is rooted in the sovereign power and promise of God. God keeps us in existence. You realize, by the way, you are not immortal and you will never be. Immortality has life in itself. God is immortal because God cannot die. You will continue to be mortal forever because it is the will of God that you continue. If God should ever will, well, I don't think you should continue, that would be the end of you. But you, dependent on God, will last forever. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Let that be the ground of your hope. Let that be what generates the fruit of hope, like faith and love, that men will see and come ask you about. This is a hope that knows who it has believed is convinced that he is able to keep what is entrusted to him. It is the only thing that will cause you to endure injustice. Have you ever known someone who is outside of Christ, but they have tried to be a, a freedom fighter, someone who fights for justice, someone who, who stands against darkness? Think about you know, you're beginning to see, uh, you know, secular pro-life kind of stuff. You know, there's even a group called that, and there's other variants of it. Have you ever seen what happens to those people in the long haul? The truth is they become burnt-out shells. They become the loudest ones saying, who can show me any good? Because without sanctifying the Lord God in their hearts, taking their stand on he is the ultimate hope and assurance and authority, injustice after injustice after injustice wears them to a nub and they've got nothing to replenish and they become this burned out husk. You have to kind of admire them because they kind of wanted to do something good, but the end is really ugly. It is only those who have set the Lord God apart in their hearts, who trust in Christ, who believe in the hope that is beyond this life, that when they come to the end of this life, there is a light in their hospice room. There is a joy in their passing that cannot be explained and will lead nurses to turn to the pastor and say, I've watched a lot of people die, but, you know, 
Mr. Brown, it's different, and I don't know why. I was the pastor, and it happened. But that is where the strength of it comes from.